The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 144, a psalm of David. Blessed be the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle, my loving kindness and my fortress, my high tower and my deliverer, my shield and the one in whom I take refuge, who subdues my people under me. Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him, or the son of man that you are mindful of him? Man is like a breath, his days are like a passing shadow. Bow down your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains, and they shall smoke. Flash forth lightning and scatter them. Shoot out your arrows and destroy them. Stretch out your hand from above. Rescue me and deliver me out of great waters from the hand of foreigners whose mouth speaks lying words and whose right hand is at right hand of falsehood. I will sing a new song to you, O God. On a harp of ten strings, I will sing praises to you. The one who gives salvation to kings, who delivers David his servant from the deadly sword. Rescue me and deliver me from the hand of foreigners, whose mouth speaks lying words, and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. That our sons may be as plants grown up in their youth. That our daughters may be as pillars, sculptured in a palace style. That our barns may be full, supplying all kinds of produce. That our sheep may bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our fields, that our oxen may be well laden, that there be no breaking in or going out, that there be no outcry in our streets. Happy are the people who are in such a state. Happy are the people whose God is the Lord. Uh, That first verse I say to myself every time I'm preparing to type Monday sermon, I always ask the Lord to prepare my fingers for the battle. Because to me, entering into God's word is like a battle that I need to uh, pursue and to uh, prevail over. And so I always ask the Lord to do that. I pray to him, be with me. And sometimes I fail to thank him when I get done. And it's three o'clock in the morning and I wake up and I say, Lord, thank you for getting me through that. I forgot to thank you earlier. But uh, sermons are very complicated at times. They're very mentally taxing to prepare. And uh, like this past week, once again, I went, you know, probably 14, maybe not, maybe 12 hours of sermon typing. And uh, that's now without even having to stop to feed the dogs because Hedico's retired. And I just sit there and I don't leave that chair until it's done. Um, This particular sermon, about seven or eight weeks ago, I had said to the church, it wasn't until a particular sermon that I realized that there was a pattern being developed. I see Ken shaking his head because he was listening that day and he he was waiting for me to get to, I know you are, I saw you that day. Uh, I, I You know, we've been doing these sermons and I've just been analyzing things and giving you what is typologically pictured. But when I got to the contents of this sermon, I always mechanically evaluate them. Without any biases or presuppositions, I just give you what is mechanically found in these verses. And then I sit down and I say, Lord, what are you telling us? Okay. And uh, talking about that exact thing, Sergio's got a new Bible. He just showed it to me. It's the NET Bible. It's got more 
margin and footnotes, not commentaries, margin and footnotes than any Bible I've ever seen. I want to get one of those. It looks marvelous. A lot of the things that I will tell you that are in the text, his already says. So it'll help you kind of get a flavor of what's being said. Anyway, despite that, uh, when I got to this sermon and I said to the Lord, Lord, what are you telling me? And I went to the typology and I realized what is being said. It came to me. And so I think I presented it in this sermon. Everything has been making a tapestry of Israel's history. I asked you during this week to check out and tell me if you knew what was going on in these verses. Anybody come to a conclusion? Okay. Here we go. We are in Judges 6, 1 through 10. This is entitled, I am the Lord your God. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves, and the strongholds which are in the mountains. So it was, whenever Israel had sown, Midianites would come up. Also Amalekites and the people of the east, and they would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents coming in as numerous as locusts. Both they and their camels were without number, and they would enter the land to destroy it. So Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. And it came to pass when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites that the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel who said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage. And I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. Also, I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. My guess is that if you have read through the Bible two times and you understand proper dispensational theology, when we get to the explanation of the verses I just read you, you are going to have a light bulb suddenly come on over your head and you're going to say, I get that. That's just my guess. At the outbreak of hostilities between Israel and Gaza in October 2023, a Jewish rabbi, supposed rabbi, I put that in quotes because this is no rabbi, Chaim Richman, was being interviewed and said to the interviewer, you guys are worshiping one Jew. That's a mistake. You should be worshiping every single one of us because we all die for your sins every single day. And that's exactly what's going on here. We are all God's firstborn and we are dying for your sins right now. Wow. Rather disgusting, but this is not unlike the attitude of the Jewish people who attacked Paul, and it has permeated their society to this day. They cannot accept that it is they who need forgiveness of sin, not only individually, but as a nation. Until one comes to Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, there is a mental disconnect between one state as a sinner and the infinite holiness of God. This is why people grade themselves on a bell curve when asked why they should be allowed to go to heaven. A common answer is, well, I'm not as bad as, or, well, I'm a good guy. Such evaluations make oneself the acceptable standard of goodness, a standard that sets the bar for God's decision. 
That is what Chaim Richman has done in relation to Israel. He has openly avowed that Israel is the standard of God's holiness, that they alone have merited it, and they are therefore to be worshipped as a people. All others are to be subject to them, not because of who God is in relation to them, but who they are in relation to God. Rather, there can only be one standard of holiness, God. The incarnation of Jesus Christ means that Jesus is God come in human form. He, therefore, is the standard, the bar by which all men will be judged. One will stand in relation to him and be condemned or saved. And the only way to be saved is by faith that he is the offering for man's sin. This is the message of the Bible. We must come to God through Jesus, and when we do so, God's infinite perfection, his righteousness, holiness, and so forth is imputed to us. Without this, we are condemned already. Let us hail God who has brought us back to himself through Jesus. Our text verse comes from Hebrews 4. It is verses 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The word of God, meaning the Bible, is what reveals Jesus to the world today. He is not physically here. He is not popping into people's heads, dreams, living rooms, or churches He has left us with his word, and he has given his spirit to those who accept what his word proclaims. This is the way it is, and because of that, we have the often repeated syllogism at the superior word to consider. We cannot rightly know God apart from Jesus Christ. We cannot rightly know Jesus Christ unless we know the Bible. Therefore, we cannot rightly know God without knowing the Bible. Israel will find this out someday. That will be seen in the pictures presented in our passage today. Get ready. It's all to be found in his superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got three thoughts for you today. The first is as numerous as locusts. It's verses one through six. Verse one, then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And did sons Israel the evil in eyes Yehovah. It is now the six of eight times that the term the evil is seen in the book of Judges. It is an offense that is done openly, almost as a mocking or challenging of the authority of the Lord, testing him to see what he would do about it. Think of Tel Aviv today, the annual gay parade. Think of it. This is what's being relayed to us right now. Chapter 5 recorded the Song of Deborah. To close out the chapter, it noted that the land rested for 40 years. With Israel doing such evil openly and brazenly before the Lord, he will now act to discipline them and bring them back into a right relationship. Verse 1 continues, So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. Vayitnem Yehovah beyad midyan shevashanim, and gave them Yehovah in hand Midian seven years. Midian is descended from Abraham by his second wife, Keturah. 
It says in Genesis 25, verse 6, that he and his brothers, born to Keturah, were sent eastward, away from Isaac. These descendants encompassed nomadic tribes that were wealthy and which spanned a large area. Moses' father-in-law was from Midian. Israel warred against Midian in Numbers 31, after they had allied with Moab in an attempt to seduce them through the treachery of Balaam. Verse 3 will note that their alliance with the Amalekites and other people of the east is what is being seen here. Judges 8.24 includes them under the Ishmaelites. Thus, Midian was allied with various Arab groups in differing ways. The name comes from Madon, strife or contention. That is derived from Din, to judge. Thus, it means strife or, more especially, place of judgment. Midian means place of judgment. Remember that for the next 10 sermons. As for the number seven, it signifies spiritual perfection. Verse two, and the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. Rather, vataaz yad midyan al Israel, and prevailed hand Midian over Israel. It is a new sentence rather than a continuation of the previous one. The Lord delivered Israel into the hands of Midian. From there, Midian began to increase over Israel. This is unlike the internal warfare of Deborah's time. Rather, it is an external foe who has come to raid and plunder the land. It is as if their hand comes crushing down on Israel during these attacks. Verse 2 continues, Because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves, and the strongholds, which are in the mountains. Rather than a general because, it provides a specific explanation to the thought that began the verse. Mipnei Midian asu lahem. From faces Midian made to them, sons Israel, the dens which in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. Midian began to come against Israel. In response to that, places where the people could run to from faces Midian were constructed. Israel is on the defense against attackers. Two new words are brought into the Bible. The first is seen only in this verse, minhara. It is from nahar, which has two distinct meanings, to shine or beam and to flow or stream. Thus, it signifies a channel or a fissure. By implication, it means a cavern or a den. John Lang's commentary provides an explanation of those dens. He says, at some rocky, elevated, and dry place, a shaft was sunk obliquely into the earth, and at a depth of about 25 fathoms, streets were run off straight and from six to eight paces wide, in the sides of which the dwellings were excavated. At various points, these streets were extended to double their ordinary width, and the roof was pierced with air holes, more or less numerous according to the extent of the place. These air holes are at present called rosen, plural rawasin, windows. This would then explain the word minhara. The air and or light would stream into these dens. Lang continues with the commentary saying, Watchmen were employed, who gave alarm signals when the enemy approached. As soon as these were given, the plowmen and herds hurried quickly into the earth and were secure. Commonly, says Whitestein, these excavations had a second place of exit, and consequently, in a region whose inhabitants are liable to constant attacks from the desert, he speaks of the Haron, are regarded as strongholds. The second place of hiding is the caves. 
That comes from the word ur, to be bare or exposed. One can think of the place in the earth being exposed, either naturally or by man, leaving a place to hide. The third place of hiding is the second new word, metzad. It comes from tsud, meaning to hunt. By implication, it signifies a stronghold or a fort. Everything about the verse shows oppression by the enemy and retreat by Israel. They had forsaken the Lord, and he had brought this trouble upon them. Verse 3, so it was whenever Israel had sown, Midianites would come up. Also Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. Rather, it is all singular. Vehaya imzara Yisrael, ve'ala midyan, va'amalek u b'nei kadem, ve'alu Love and was if sown Israel and ascended Midian and Amalek and sons east and ascended against him. Saying if sown instead of when sown gives a sense of intensity in the minds of Israel. Should we even bother to sow? But when someone did, the oppressor would be there to plunder the effort. Amalek was the first of Israel's enemies after leaving Egypt. The Lord declared war upon them from generation to generation. That's found in Exodus 17. The name is derived from the word am, people, and malak, which means to nip or wring off the head of a bird with or without severing it from the body. Thus, they are the people who wring off. They are those who are disconnected from the body and strive to disconnect the body. The Bene Kedem, or sons east, would be the various people groups, including Arab tribes, Ishmaelites, etc. These words are a way of saying that anyone and everyone found Israel as a source of plunder and easy pickings. It thus speaks of real desperation. Verse 4, then they would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza. The narrator inserts the hearer into the narrative by using the second person singular. And encamp upon them and destroy produce the earth until your second person singular coming Aza. The heaviness of the oppression is seen in the words as the plunderers from the east would encamp upon Israel from the east to the west and towards the southwest where Gaza lay, destroying everything Israel had brought forth in the harvest season. Gaza is a feminine form coming from Az, strong. It signifies strong or strong place. So heavy was their oppression that they destroyed it all. Verse 4 continues, and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep, nor ox, nor donkey. Velo yashiru michya be Yisrael, vase vashur vachamor, and no remain sustenance in Israel, and sheep, and ox, and donkey. This will be explained in the next verse. For now, it is as if these raiders came in, set up camp, and waited for the produce to come. When it was ready, they would take it for themselves. But more, because of their presence, there wasn't even sustenance left for any type of animal. Verse 5, for they would come up with their livestock and their tents. Kihem umitnehem ya'alu ve'aholehem. For they and their livestock ascend and their tents. The invaders are contrasted to Israel. Their livestock are contrasted to Israel's. And their tents, being easy open-air dwellings, are contrasted to the oppressive dens, caves, and strongholds in which Israel hid. 
They are words of absolute superiority and dominance. They were, verse 5 continues, coming in as numerous as locusts. Yavou kedei arbe larov, coming according to abundance locust to the multitude. These words are given to explain the complete lack Israel faced. This is then expressed again for greater effect. Verse 5 continues, both they and their camels were without number. Velahem veligmalehem en mispar. And to them and to their camels, not number. Just as the locust that moves around, making it impossible to count them, so was the horde of invaders alighting upon Israel. Noting camels is intended to show another level of their absolute subjugation of the land. Camels were not found in abundance in Canaan. They were brought in by the invaders, and they demonstrate both ease of travel and ability to load and carry away plunder. As for the gamal or camel, that comes from the verb gamal, to deal fully or adequately with. Thus, it can mean to wean, repay, require, reward, ripen, and so forth. As such, it refers to the treatment, either well or ill, that a person will receive. As such, the invaders would pick up and encamp from place to place, eating up or loading up everything as they went. Verse 5 continues, and they would enter the land to destroy it. And came in the land to destroy her. The words of this verse are well reflected later in Joel 1 when referring to the day of the Lord. It speaks of invaders coming into the land of Israel as locusts, destroying everything in their path. The words are striking and magnificent, being summed up with the words of Joel 1.4, what the chewing locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the crawling locust has eaten. And what the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten. To get a better sense of the level of devastation, take time to read Joel 1. It is probably not unlike what is being described here in Judges. Thus, verse 6, so Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites. Other than Midianite being singular, Midian, the translation is fine. The word Dalal is used. It comes from a root meaning to slacken or be feeble. It gives a sense of people being so thin and so gaunt that they could hardly lift their arms. As such, verse 6 continues, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. It is the anticipated result from the words of verse 1. Verse 1, and gave them Jehovah in hand Midian seven years. Verse 6, and cried out, sons Israel, unto Jehovah. The Lord's hand of discipline through the subjugation of Israel by Midian resulted in the necessary response to the corrective measures. Instead of crying out to the gods of the land, doing what was despicable according to the law, and failing to honor the Lord as expected, Israel again cries out to Jehovah. Years of trouble have come upon us, misfortune that is of our own making. We rejected God's provision in Jesus when it was always there for the taking. We are without sustenance all day. We have nothing but want and lack. We hear everyone of Israel now say, if we could only take it all back. We are impoverished in the place of judgment. We have only one path left that we can go. Every other avenue has been spent. The Lord Jesus alone can take away our woe. Our second thought today, I am the Lord your God. 
Verse 7, and it came to pass when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites. Vehi ki za'aku b'nei Yisrael el Yehovah al odot midyan. And was, when cried out sons Israel, unto Yehovah upon turnings Midian. The word odot is a plural noun with an almost poetic connotation. It comes from the same as the word ud, a firebrand. Just as one uses a firebrand to turn the coals to keep them hot and burning, so were the turnings of Midian. The things they did stirred up the life of Israel. Hence, one might say, events, happenings, or occasions. It was because of their actions, leading to these great woes, that Israel cried out to the Lord. Again, look at the way the Lord arranged this. Verse 1, and gave them Jehovah in hand Midian seven years. Verse 7, and cried out, sons Israel unto Jehovah upon turnings Midian. Notice that it doesn't say Israel repented of their sins. They simply cried out to the Lord. It can be assumed that at this point, they no longer even know what the law demanded. They had turned from him and gone about their own ways during the 40 years of peace after the battle against Sisera. Because of this, the Lord sent trouble on them. But rather than acknowledging their wrongdoing, they simply cry out to the Lord. Because of these things, it was, verse 8, that the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel. It is amazing how many translations brazenly omit a key word found in this clause. See if you can find it before I get to the explanation. Vayishlach Yehovah ish navi el bene Yisrael and sent Yehovah man prophet unto sons Israel. The majority of translations skip the word man as if it was an irrelevant thing. The word Navi or prophet is masculine. Therefore, the word may have been considered superfluous by the translators. However, it is the same addition as was stated of Deborah in Judges 4.4. And Deborah, woman, prophetess, wife, or woman of Lapidot. And that made all the difference in what we evaluated in Judges 4. This is the first time any person is said to be a prophet or prophetess since then. There is meaning that is being conveyed that will never be understood without a proper translation of the words. And yet, in both the account of Deborah and this one now, the identifiers, woman and man, are simply ignored by most translators. Equally damaging as leaving out words in the translation are the writings of the Jews, stating that the prophet was Phineas. That may be true, and it's fine to speculate, but to state it as a fact when the Bible leaves it out can only lead to unclear analysis of the story. Once something like that is introduced, it is what the mind will focus on, rather than the story with its necessary typology. It was seen that Deborah prefigured the New Testament. What is the progression of the stories so far? Do they form an understandable sequence of events? If so, what would be the logical progression of events concerning Israel during the church age? The account now being presented is explaining the ongoing redemptive narrative with key words being presented to keep us on the right track. Understanding this, the words of this man, a prophet, are next conveyed to Israel at the end of the seven years of oppression by Midian. Verse 8 continues, who said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, Vayomer lachem, ko amar Yehovah Elohei Yisrael, and says to them, thus said Yehovah, God Israel. The prophet is conveying a proclamation of the Lord previously spoken to Israel. 
They had been spoken to, and now they are being reminded of what was said to them. The proclamation is, verse 8 continues, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage. It bears emphasis. Anochi he'eleti etchem mi Mitzrayim, va'otzi etchem mi bet avadim. I ascended you from Egypt and you from house slaves. The idea of being ascended from Egypt has been stated repeatedly since early in Exodus. Egypt pictures life under the bondage of sin. The Lord ascended Israel from that, exalting them to new life under the law. However, the law is its own type of bondage to sin. As Paul says, for by the law is the knowledge of sin, Romans 3.20. This is why Paul specifically calls the law bondage several times in the book of Galatians. Despite this, with the proper observance of the allowances given under the law, sin was atoned for. The law was a necessary step in the process of redemption. It was given to Israel to teach them and the world at large a lesson concerning their need for God's provision found in Jesus, the Messiah. That's found in Galatians 3.24. As for ascending Israel from Egypt and the house of bondage, the prophet continues with the words of the Lord. Verse 9, and I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians. More literally, va'atzil etchem miyad mitzrayim. I plucked you from the hand of Egypt. It is as if the Lord literally grabbed Israel and tore them right out of the grasping hand of Egypt. Think of life in sin. One is a slave to sin in a world full of sin. But the Lord, through the work of Christ, literally plucks us out of that. And more, verse 9 continues, and out of the hand of all who oppressed you. Umiyad kal lochat sechem, and from hand all your oppressors. Again, think of the state of the people under sin. You are not just bound in sin, but you are tightly in the grasp of the oppressions of sin, drugs, drink, porn, idolatry, and so on. These things grasp us and they hold fast to us. And yet, through the power of the Lord, one can be completely plucked out of that kind of life. This is what he has done for Israel. And more, the Lord's words through the prophet continue. Verse 9 going on, and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And cast out them from your faces and gave to you their land. It speaks of sanctification. First, the Lord saves people from the penalty of sin. Egypt providing salvation. Then he removes from them the power of sin, providing sanctification. Being given the land of Canaan pictures salvation, while casting out the occupiers pictures the process of sanctification. These things are being reminded to Israel in their actual history. But the things picture other things. The Lord did these things for them. Verse 10, also, I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Ve'omra lachem, ani Yehovah Elohechem, and saying to you, I, Yehovah your God. The appeal is made based first upon the revelation of, of himself as Yehovah, the Lord, as seen in Exodus 3, 13 through 15. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. 
Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. The appeal is next based upon the covenant made at Sinai that the people had agreed to, saying, Your God. Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. It is Jehovah, Israel's God, that then said, verse 10 continues, do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. Lo tiru et elohe ha-emori asheratem yovoshvim be'artsam. No fear gods the Amorite, which you dwelling in their land. The words dwelling in their land are not speaking of the Amorite, which is singular. Rather, it is speaking of the gods of the Amorite who are feared by the Amorite. The Lord is telling them not to fear those gods as if they had any power, authority, or ability. They do not. Thus, it is ridiculous that they would be feared by Israel. Of this word, yare, or fear, John Lang observes the following. The words put into the mouth of the unknown preacher reproduce the old penitential discourse. In various but similar forms, that discourse ever reappears. For it rests on Mosaic warnings and declarations whose truth all the fortunes of Israel confirm. For the first time, however, the verb yara, to fear, elsewhere used only with reference to God, is here connected with heathen gods, but only to point out the fact that disobedient Israel has yielded to idol gods the reverence which it owed to the eternal God. When such rebukes are gladly heard by the people, deliverance is near at hand. When they believe themselves to have deserved such admonitions and punishments, they again believe God. In accepting the judge, we secure the deliverer, such as the historical experience of all ages. Stated more briefly, it never actually says, do not fear their gods prior to this. Rather, that is implied in the multiple instances where Israel was told to fear the Lord, thus implying not serving the gods of Canaan. They were to ignore them, destroy the idols that represent them, and so forth. Israel ignorantly or willfully snubbed this, even though it was implicit. As for the name, Amorite means renown. Verse 10 finishes with, but you have not obeyed my voice. Velo shmatem bekoli, and no heard in my voice. The meaning of hear is to both listen and to obey. That is no different than the army sergeant saying to the private, you didn't listen to what I said. He couldn't help but hear, but he didn't act on what was said to him. Hence, he is on KP duty for the next week. Israel failed to hear, and they went on an extremely long term of serving other gods, culminating in seven years of absolute leanness, oppression, and deprivation in order to bring them back to the Lord. That ending will be described as the verses in the next section are entered upon. The hero who will act on behalf of the Lord is named Gideon. Get ready for at least 10 and maybe 11 Gideon sermons. It is a fascinating study. Everything that happens in those sermons is based on what is presented in these 10 verses. I'll explain that later. I am the Lord your God, the God of Israel. I brought you up from the land of Egypt. You were sold out to sin, a sad story to tell. Of any hope, 
Your chances had been stripped. I delivered you from the hand of Egypt and from the hand of every oppressor. But from me, you gladly skipped, leaving your God for everything lesser. You did not heed my voice. You left me behind. You did not pay heed to my word. You made the choice, one cold and unkind, when you rejected Jesus Christ, your Lord. Our third thought today is the ending of a nightmare. The passage today has been an introductory note into what lies ahead with the calling and leadership of Gideon. This is what the Bible does from time to time and what I said I would explain to you. It opens a new thought with a short introduction or maybe a summary of something, and then it expands on it. In this case, it speaks of the past and continues to the present of the narrative. Israel is said to have done the evil in the eyes of Jehovah. To see the progression of what has happened, a review of the earlier passages will help. Now listen to this. This is what we have reviewed already in Judges. This is when I realized what is going on in Judges. First, Othniel, who battled Cushon Rishathaim. That was a picture of the Gentiles carrying the message of Christ until the house of Israel and the house of Judah would accept that message. Okay? That in itself was also a type of introduction into what lay ahead. It gave a snapshot of what would occur after the work of Christ, even before that work was detailed. Everybody see this? There's an introduction, and then there's an explanation. Next came the story of Ehud. He's giving it to Eglon right where it hurts. As was noted in that sermon, it is a picture of the complete atonement of transgressions of the law. It represents the full, final, finished, and forever satisfaction of the law in Christ's work. The sword went in, the fat covered it over, and he did not draw the sword out of the belly. It is finished. That's right from that sermon. It was further noted that this work was fully sufficient to save both Jews and Gentiles. Shamgar was then introduced, giving a brief but complimentary display of how to appropriate the work of Christ. So we've got the work of Christ. We've got how to appropriate the work of Christ. Next, after that was Judges 4 and Deborah the New Testament. The passage referred to the dispensation of grace, which is represented by the Gentile-led church. As was noted during that sermon, I said, that will come to its completion someday at the rapture, another noted mystery of Christ, when it will be too late for the wise of the world. Destruction will come on a global scale, and a new dispensation will be ushered in after that time. God is working through the church to accomplish the redemptive plans set forth during this dispensation. He is revealing his nature, his goodness, his soul path to reconciliation, his wisdom, and so much more through the church. Judges 5, the song of Deborah, was a rejoicing over the events of Judges 4. They were placed into a poetic narrative, gloriously revealing the obvious pleasure that the Lord takes in his church. But as noted, the church will end at the rapture. What comes after that in the redemptive narrative? Yes, you in the third row. Why, yes, the tribulation period. For an extra bonus, can you tell how long that will be? Yes, very good. Seven years. Good job. That is what is referred to in verse one of today's passage. Does everybody see now what's happening? I'm introducing the plan of redemption into the beginning of Judges. I am now introducing the full, final, finished, forever work of Christ. I am now introducing how to obtain that. On and on throughout history, introducing the New Testament, rejoicing over the church. The church is gone. 
tribulation period. Okay? That is what is referred to here. Israel, who has rejected the Lord, will face seven years of strife in the place of judgment. Midian, meaning the tribulation period. Anytime you see that name Midian for the next 10 or 11 sermons, it means the tribulation period. Midian, okay? It is a time when the world will prevail against Israel. It is also a time when the whole world, not just Israel, will hide themselves, as it says in Revelation, in caves and in the rocks of the mountains, Revelation 6:15. The terminology in Judges anticipates the state of things proclaimed in Revelation. Mentioning Amalek means that there will be those who continue to wring people off from what is right. They will strive to disconnect Jews from their true head, just as Jesus warned. He said in Matthew 24, for false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. That is during the tribulation period that Matthew 24 is describing. That is who is being pictured by Amalek. Indeed, he told them, who will listen? As for the Bene Kedem, or sons east, the word Kedem means not only east, but before time, that which has already been. It seems logical that this would be referring to those who continue to cling to the law, annulled in the past through Christ's work, simply because they cannot let go of it. That is carefully detailed in the book of Hebrews. Destroying the produce as far as Gaza, meaning strong place, means that there will be nothing left of value in all of Israel. Every false hope will be shown for what it is, and there will eventually be no place left to turn. That is explained in mentioning that these oppressors will be as numerous as locusts. The symbolism of the day of the Lord, as presented in Joel, which refers to the tribulation period of the end times, is quite clear. Likewise, mentioning the camel then fits as well. There will be a sufficient treatment of what the nation deserves laid upon Israel. For example, this is the general thought of what the word means from Psalm 103. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished the word gamal, which is the basis of camel, according to our sins. The psalmist essentially says he has not cameled us according to our iniquities. In the case of the tribulation period, a fully sufficient cameling will be meted out. That is why the camels are mentioned specifically here and later in the Gideon sermons. All of this, however, has an intended purpose, which is for Israel to turn and cry out to the Lord. That's verse 6, as was noted, and gave them Jehovah in hand Midian seven years and cried out sons Israel unto Jehovah upon turnings Midian. Think of that in typology and cried out sons Israel unto Jehovah upon turnings of the tribulation period. That is exactly what's being pictured here. The turnings of the firebrand in the place of judgment, the tribulation will meet its final goal of bringing Israel out from the law and into the grace of God found in Jesus Christ. I will tell you something. I typed Judges, the second or third to the last Gideon sermon this past week. And I said to Sergio, I cannot believe what a great bookend that sermon is to what we're looking at right now. Unbelie I couldn't believe that I typed that because it fit perfectly. It's the capturing of the kings, Ziba and Zalmona, and what he is going to do to them, all of that. 
It is astonishing how these next sermons all fit into these 10 verses right here. Okay, I'll give you an example. I may say this again because I can't remember if I do it in this sermon or a later sermon. But you have Genesis chapter 1. God creates man. What does he do in Genesis chapter 2? He repeats that in full detail. God created them, male and female, he created them, right? That's all it says. And then in Genesis 2, it goes through all of the explanation of how he created them, (laughs) his relationship with them, everything. That is what's happening here. Judges 1 through 10, and then the next 10 or 11 sermons all fit right into these 10 sermons. Got that? Okay, good. It will be during that time that a prophet will speak to them. Verse 8, it does not say the prophet, which would anticipate Jesus. Rather, it is a prophet. The difference between Deborah and this unnamed prophet is clear. Deborah referred to the New Testament. There is no doubt that was what was being pictured in those sermons. The word diatheke, a covenant or testament, is a feminine noun. However, this passage refers to man, prophet. It is the full word of God. Hebrew is davar, a word, masculine, and Greek is logos, a word, masculine. Israel had rejected the New Testament. But at some point, they will go to it. They will compare it with the old, just as Jesus told them to 2,000 years ago, and they will finally listen. In their search, they will realize that it was Jesus who led them out of what Egypt only pictured, the life of sin that they clung to. The law could never save them. Instead, they were brought out of oppression into another type of bondage because they failed to see that it had an end purpose of leading them to Jesus Christ. As noted, the passage is anticipatory of the battle itself. Gideon will be the judge directed by the Lord to wage that battle. Whatever typology comes from the rest of what is said about him, the passage today is one of recognizing that Israel will go through the tribulation period. As for the contents, it clears up some amazingly poor theology. It demonstrates that the words of Jesus in Matthew 24 are not referring to the church at all, that the tribulation period will be seven years and that the church will not be here during those seven years. All of that can be inferred right in the verses we've looked at today. Get ready for confirmation of that in the next sermons. The attention is focused on Israel and those who failed to come to Jesus during the church age. These things are evident. While Israel is currently fearing all of the gods of the Amorite, There are faithful people in the world, both Jews and Gentiles, who are fearing the Lord who presented himself to the world in the person of Jesus Christ. It is he who prevailed over the law. It is he who is revealed in the New Testament. And it is he who is concealed in the old until the old is compared with the new. Then everything fits like a glove. Each step of what we have seen has been used to build a picture of the world in which we now live and of what is coming upon it, probably in the very near future. Think of the arrogance of Chaim Richman, who was mentioned at the beginning of the sermon today. We don't worship a nation, and we sure don't worship the people of a nation who have rejected and maligned the name of the Lord for over 2,000 years. They cannot atone for anyone's sin, much less their own. There is only one who can do that. Someday, Israel as a nation will discover this. Until then, fix your eyes on Jesus. Give God all of your hope, your faith, adoration, praise, all of it for what he has done in the coming of Christ. We serve the Lord God Almighty when we serve the Lord Jesus. Hallelujah and amen.
Isn't that wonderful? Did everybody have a light come on today? Anybody? It is right there in front of us. It is telling us, if you follow what was going on in the previous judge's sermon, and I had no idea of this. It's not like I made any of that up. I'm just doing one. And when I got to this sermon, I said, look at what's going on. Look at what God is presenting. He's presenting something, and now he's going to explain all of the process of that through the life of Gideon. It's a long process. I hope you enjoy it. I don't remember any of the sermons between this week and the one I typed on Monday, okay? I have no idea. I, we're going to learn again together because when I type these things, I just don't pay attention to what I'm actually typing. I'm trying to get something out. And then when I read it three or four, five weeks later, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is great. <laughs> I, so there you go with that. Uh, confirmation of this comes from Jesus' own mouth when he speaks to Israel. When he says, how I have longed to gather you as a chick under the wings of a hen. That's right. But you would not. Behold, I tell you, you shall not see me again until you say, Israel, not the church, Israel, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what's being pictured right here. They cry out to the Lord. They say, Jesus is the Messiah. We've missed it all along. They cry out to him, and he returns to them. Get ready. It's all detailed in the next sermons. But it's given as a snapshot here, an introduction to open up what we are going to go through. It's astonishing. What a great, great God we are serving that can do this. I've read this how many times in my life? 150, 200 times? I had no idea until I sat down. And even after doing all of the mechanical work of this sermon, I'm thinking, what are you telling us, Lord? So for the next three hours, I sit there and look at the thing, and I read it again. And finally, it's like, bing! And then you hear it, and it just makes total sense. Unbelievable. Okay, you need Jesus. Jesus died for your sins, and it's so easy to appropriate. Jesus died for your sins. He was buried. He rose again. He proved that he's God because all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. He proved that your sins are still in the grave because if your sins clung to Jesus, he would not have come out of that grave. Salvation is eternal and it comes by one thing, faith. Believe the gospel message. This is what God wants you to do. He didn't care about anything else that you do until you believe the gospel message. And then after that, he'll say, I would like you to live according to what I have laid out for you so that you can have a holy and complete life in the Lord. Whether you're sick, whether you're poor, whether you're rich, whether you're healthy, it doesn't make any difference to the Lord if you are not living for him after you get saved. Live for him once you are saved. Our closing verse comes from Isaiah 40. It's verses 6 through 10. Think of what I said to you as we close the prophecy update today. All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever, forever. Wonderful stuff. Next week is Judges 6, 11 through 16. Jay has a lot of work to do until Gideon is done. It's entitled Gideon, Judge of Israel. Part one. Thank you, Jay. That'll be your 18th Judges sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It is he who judges his people according to their deeds. So follow him, live for him, and trust him. 
and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? I've got a great, great poem for you today. But before I do, I want Hidako to come up here. She needs to help me with this because I want this to be absolutely fair. I don't want anybody punching or kicking or accusing, okay? <laughs> we have a person. We have a person that attends online. He's a wonderful person. He will not allow me to give the name of his company, but I can tell you he's a famous guitar maker. Now, this guitar is not... It, it, it sounds okay. It, it plays one song. It has one string and it plays one song. No kidding. Amazing Grace. That's all you need is one string to play it. I showed this to Sergio on um, uh, Thursday and he wants this so bad. He actually played. He, he just figured out and he played within one minute or two minutes of picking it up. He played Amazing Grace. Okay. This is a labor of love from somebody I cannot name, but it is a guitar in the shape of a cross. If you don't play, and it, it, it doesn't give great sound because it doesn't have any uh, box to produce a sound, so you have to listen closely. But if you don't play, just put it on the wall because he's got a hole there for a nail and you just put it on the wall. But th this is, and I said to myself, I'm going to find the toughest question that I can think. And then I thought exactly the opposite. No, 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 no. I thought exactly the opposite. I said, you know what? This, I want somebody that maybe is new, but has read the Bible one time, you will get this. And because of that, I've called my wife up here to tell me who gets it first. And you have to raise your hand. If you call it out, you are not getting this guitar. You have to raise your hand. You watch. I'm not even going to look because I don't want to be biased. <laughs> what would be better for a person than for him to cause a little one who believes in Jesus to sin? Who raised the hand first? Uh, the real stone. Okay. Tied around his neck and thrown into the ocean. And we got a guitar player that won. Okay. I had nothing to do with that. What? Can Sergio play it now? Well, you can. It's very, very quiet. You'd have to stand really close. It, it, you can hear it only. So it wouldn't do you any good. Without a box, you wouldn't hear it. But I will say this. This is made from cedar, from limba, from jatoba, and maple. Most of these came from out of the country, and he took little pieces of it, and he inserted them. This is the cedar here. And he told me a story about that, which I, 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 it doesn't really matter. Let me read you what he said, though. Okay? I've got to be careful. If you put his name, I can't read it. Um, Charlie, this is for the prize question. Last one of the year, too. Wasn't this nice of him? After your sermons, you may not be super musical, which is true, but try this out. I did, and I couldn't do it. I, I, I have no ability to play. And he did it, like, in one second. If you want, you can hang it on a wall or play it. It only plays one song. O means open string, no fingers. When playing notes, hold your finger directly behind the frets as numbered to get the best sound. Enjoy. And he put the little numbers here for an adult like me, and I still couldn't do it. So, <laughs> congratulations. This will be waiting up here for you. But... Uh, all right. String, there, yeah, one string. And it's, it's just to be something beautiful for you. Okay, so congratulations. I'm glad I didn't look because I didn't want to get punched by anybody. Um, I'm going to keep this. That's so special. I'm going to keep this in my, my uh, binder here. And uh, anyway, fun stuff, fun stuff. Um, I'll read you a poem and we'll take the Lord's Supper. I am the Lord your God. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, as we understand, so the Lord delivered them for seven years into Midian's hand. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel because of the Midianites from afar. 
The children of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves, and the strongholds, which in the mountain are. So it was, whenever Israel had sown, Midianites would come up again. Also Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. Then they would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza, acts so wonky, and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep, nor ox, nor donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, coming in as numerous as locusts. They just wouldn't quit. Both they and their camels were without number, and they would enter the land to destroy it. Keep thinking of the tribulation period. So Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites, as we have heard. Then the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. And it came to pass when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites, a sad story to tell, that the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel, who said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel. I brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage too. And I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. So I did do. I also said to you, I am the Lord, your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites. I gave you that choice in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Lord God, Turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father. We certainly pray for the nation of Israel today. They are going to go through very, very bad times in the days ahead. It's a self-inflicted wound, and it's because of people like Rabbi Chaim Richman and others like him, and the entire nation who has rejected Jesus. They've rejected the source of all goodness, the Lord their God. And because of that, bad times are ahead. But this is for the whole world as well. There will be a group that is exempt, and for those who have called on Jesus— they will be spared from that. But it's going to be a terrible time, Lord. And we just pray for them. We pray for people that are left behind that we love, that they will make the right choice, not take the mark of the beast, but be willing to give up their lives for the wonderful and exalted name, the name above all names. Lord, thank you for the past year. It's been a very, very difficult one in some ways. And we just anticipate 2024 with hope but reserved hope because we know that things are only going to get worse in the world. They're not going to improve no matter who's elected. We know that. We know that there's going to be tough times ahead. But give us more grace, Lord. We sure need it. We thank you. We love you. We praise you. We exalt you. In his name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.